0: Whether it's for work or play, we rely on home internet so much these days. Being connected and staying connected has never been more important. So if you want reliable internet, bought you at speed, switch to Aussie Broadband. It only takes a few minutes to sign up, and their 100% Australian-based support team are ready to help. Aussie Broadband, the actual Aussie way. Find out more at aussiebroadband.com.au. T's and C's apply. G'day guys, welcome back to the Dylan Friends podcast. Thanks for tuning in. If you haven't yet checked out Stevie JZ from last week, make sure you do. It's an absolute ripper. He's one of the game's greatest players and an even better storyteller. Thanks again, Stevie. I know you're listening. Now, some big news, as promised. If you're driving the car, pull over. If you're standing, sit down. And if you're walking the dog, chuck him on the lead. The Dill and Friends podcast has teamed up with Bonds Australia in the first major sponsorship. It's only fitting for one of Australia's most iconic brands to team up with one of Australia's most iconic podcasts. So Bonds, thanks again for jumping on. We're going to have a lot of fun with this one. In saying that, this episode is proudly brought to you by our friends at Bonds. This week, I chat to media and commentating guru, Basil Zemplis. The great man has worked in the Australian media for over two decades, commentating not only AFL games, but many Olympic games as well. He's a friendly face you see in the Channel 7 newsroom and on Sunrise and I've officially crowned him the Prince of Perth. During our chat, we touch on his early transition from footy to media and what could have been, calling some of Australia's most historic moments, including Stephen Bradbury's come-from-nowhere win at the Winter Olympics. We also touch on his relationship with fellow commentating legends Bruce McAvaney and Dennis Committee. We talk about his love for footy and all other sports and much, much more. All right, let's get into it. Hi, this is the Dill and Friends podcast. I'm Deborah, Dylan's mum. Thanks for tuning in, and I hope you like the show as much as I do. And don't forget to subscribe and leave a review. Basil Zemplis, thank you so much for joining me on Dylan Friends, mates. Uh... Huge fan of yourself and, um, yeah, quite chuffed to sit down.
1: No, I'm rapt to be here. Um, It's great to be
0: on the podcast. Thank you for having me. (laughs) Mate, um, being the media and uh, commentating tycoon that you are today, um, (laughs) a lot of people might not know, but you actually did start off your career playing footy. So being a Perth boy, West Perth boy, sorry, Uh, 24 games, 25 goals between 1990 and 1994,
1: mates. uh... Yeah, I, I'll say it for you if you <laughs> want. Yeah, all right. So that's not a lot of footy in that period of time. Look, I had a lot of injuries. Still, it okay. <laughs> I had a. Actually, I did actually really have a bad run with injuries. I, I broke just about every bone in my body. Both legs. Both legs, was that the bone. same incident or over no, the? No, over yeah. a, a whole uh, a whole period. I had a collapsed lung, uh, like by the name of Stephen Hooper, who was the number one draft pick. The year after it happened, he ran through me to centre bounce. The only bone I didn't break was the only one I wanted to, and that was my nose. I thought <laughs> if I broke my nose, I'm sweet. I'm going to get it fixed up. I can get a bit shaved <laughs> off. So I broke everything else. I, I was I was your early kind of mobile ruckman. Yeah. Um, I I trained with uh, West Coast. They had a couple of. Uh, In those days, um, it was early draft days. And I remember a couple of times being invited down to talent ID days, if you like. Mick Malthouse took training. Yes. With with the West Coast squad members, not not necessarily their best 22, but the rest of them. And then some of the waffle guys were invited to train. And I was one of those. That happened a couple of times. Uh, And then... I also was approached by Fremantle when they were setting up their list. I'd been out of footy for a year at that stage, but they were still. I'd made enough of an impression that they wanted to um, have a chat to me about maybe being on their first list. By that stage, footy had got going. But no, I loved it. I, uh, I could take a mark. I played under Jeff Geeshen, who was uh, the umpire's boss, yes, and he was, yes. uh, went on to be Richmond coach. And uh, I, I loved it, but too many injuries, but probably it was the best thing that happened because one career that I was keen on didn't work
0: out. And maybe that was a sign that the other one was going to be the way to go. That's it. I think you've undersold yourself a lot, mate. I've heard some big things coming from Perth. More of an athletic, raw ruckman. Yeah, that'll do. Mould of Rory Lobb, that sort of type.
1: Big Rory. I see a bit of Rory now in Perth. He's got good hair,
0: Rory. Hasn't yeah, he? Does. Did all he's these teammates used to say you've got magnificent hair? Well, he's very handsome. He's um, a handsome boy. He loves his toys, Rory. He's got about four four wheel drives, a couple jet skis. Has he really? Yeah, he's a he's a big toy boy. I think that's a big reason he loves his fishing, loves his camping. So, right. um,
1: well, he's got good hair. Yeah, I know that.
0: That's all that matters. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, mate, obviously with the footy, you played a few years there, but then the opportunity came up to yeah, join the media. Yeah, so I
1: had studied... So while I was playing footy, uh, I had studied journalism and uh, I'd done four years at uni. And um, actually, footy was really good for journalism. So as you know, and s- sorts of things you're doing, there were, um, there were club newsletters that needed to be put out. There were articles that needed to be written for the community newspapers in the area and that sort of stuff. So I, I used footy as a way to sort of get a bit of experience where I could while I was still playing footy. And it was... Kind of right place, right time. Almost out of nowhere, an opportunity came up uh, for a job at Channel Seven, and I didn't think I was anywhere near. Sort of, almost straight out of uni with yep. a little bit of work experience here and there to to land at Channel Seven. But sure enough, I spoke to them, I got a job at 22. I was still playing in the waffle that year. It was 1994. And the boss at Seven said, look, you might be able to combine both. Um, we, we'll, we'll see if we can let you do it. But, I, of course, I wasn't going in as you know a 300-game superstar. Yeah. I was going yeah. in as a bloke who had just got a cadetship. And weekend work is important, obviously, in, in, in television news and any reporting of, of footy. So um, I tried for a little while. It didn't work. And uh, I had to retire sort of early in 1994, And they won the – they made the finals that year and they won the flag the next year. But I didn't regret it. I I knew that um, the luck that I'd sort of hoped I would get in footy, it it was obvious to me that it was – I'd sort of got that luck in this other career. And um, so I was away in 1994, started as a reporter for Seven News in Perth, and that was West Coast's second premiership year. In those days, budgets seemed to be less limited than they are now. And I was in – so I was 22-year-old turning 23 – I was in Melbourne, I reckon, every second weekend covering West Coast. That's how often, you know, that's yeah. how it used to get done then. It was a dream come true and, and Seven had the rights. I remember being on the ground when the siren sounded about two minutes after the siren where the West Coast Eagles were walking around in the huddle, putting their hats on, popping their champagne, doing all of that. And I was out there as a reporter and I was thinking, this is pretty incredible. And, and a lot of those guys I had sort of played a bit of footy yeah. against and there's me, you know, standing there with the Seven tie-on and, and doing interviews for the news to go back to Perth that night. So I, I, I got a – like things happened for me in footy – sorry, in footy reporting or in, in my TV career that didn't happen for me in footy. So it kind of – it was pretty obvious to me that this was the right way to
0: go. 100%. Um, it's actually funny because I know this guy, mm. great guy. Yeah. Uh, he's had a fantastic eight-year career mm-hmm. so far. And uh, like I said, if, if footy was on good blokes, he would have won, won three brown lows by mm-hmm. now um, – and he's at that stage in his career now where he doesn't know what's happening. Mm. Um, he's got a podcast, yeah. and um, <laughs> he's probably looking for some advice. What, what, what yeah. could you What could you give him? Well, only because he's a good bloke. <laughs> uh, well, the
1: the thing that I like about opportunities now is um, a footy background is is great, but you don't have to have played football at the absolute highest level and played 300 games to get opportunities. And it's actually, in a serious way, Dylan, you know, people used to say probably 10 years ago, gee, there's not going to be many roles for those people that haven't played AFL football. But then you stop and think about the main broadcasters at all of the TV stations, and sure, there's big-name experts who have coached or played, but the main guys, Hamish, Bruce, Hutto. Um, Jared Whiteley, Robbo, how many AFL games have they played between mm. them? Zero. So the good thing is that, uh, and, and this is what I like about the opportunities in footy, particularly footy media, is you can have had a brilliant career and you'll probably you'll get a gig, but you can also not have had any career in footy and still get an opportunity. And then if there's somebody, if there's a good bloke in between who's had an eight-year career, <laughs> uh, footy knowledge is footy knowledge. And... Um, you know, I, I reckon in some ways you're able to forge your own path because of it.
0: 100%. I'll let him know. I think he'll be pretty, yeah, chuff, tell him, tell pretty him. chuffed give, with that. tell him. Tell him um, to give
1: me a ring. I'll give him some advice. Yeah, that'd be great. Yeah. <laughs>
0: um, doing some research, one of your, your big breaks mm. uh, was an article that you, uh, sorry, a news report that you did on a Melbourne. Yeah, that, camp getting kicked out of yeah, the so, West Coast so, training. So West Coast were ahead of
1: their time, I think. This was 1994. It was the finals in 1994,
0: and they had a closed session. Now, closed sessions now, like you go... Was that Mick Malthouse? That was Mick. Because yeah. I've played at, with Mick of at Carlton, and yeah. every session was closed. Yeah, well, You weren't even allowed to bring
1: your parents down. That's right, and a few years later, every session was closed everywhere yeah. anyway. But this was early days. and So there was a final coming. I reckon it was a qualifying final, and... Um, and West Coast were training at Subi. A couple of Melbourne officials came in. They knew it was closed, but they thought they'd walk in anyway. Anyway, all hell broke loose. Mick <laughs> sent the blokes over. They get dragged out. And I just happened to be standing there with a the camera, you know, almost like right place, right time. Yeah. Got shots of it. And, and that won the best, uh, best news story that year. And, again, that was my first year. So, you know, sometimes I think you, a little sign that this is the right, this is where you're supposed to be funny, looking back in those days, and we've got Mick in common, I, I really liked Mick, and Mick was very, very nice to me, very kind. He could be tough as yeah. well, and a bit like I guess can happen with players. He sort of had worn the media down by the time he left Perth, but it was no surprise to see him then go to Collingwood and have great success as well, and he, he's a legendary figure in WA. He, he always will be, and um, he, he was uh, it, it's pretty amazing to have had Mick as your first footy coach that you were covering as a full-time AFL reporter, I have just come out of a Ross Lyon era. Yes, Ross tough, but Mick in those early uh, days tougher, yeah. a lot tougher.
0: And you, could, if you can handle Mick back then, you can handle anything. 100. And, and I'd, I'd concur with that. Like Mick was easily one of my favourite uh, coaches I've had. You gave me my first, my first crack at it, but um, yeah, he could really, he could really uh, give you a good spray. Yeah, and, and... and
1: then in his first year out of Collingwood he then came and worked for Seven and and I was uh, that we were early stages of calling Saturday afternoon footy it was me and Hamish Tom Harley and Mick was our um Mick was our expert yes so there was so uh, the four of us, and we had some great time uh, one, one of the best Saturdays we had so Mick's fresh out of coaching Collingwood I think feeling a little bit like where do I belong now in footy? And that was absolutely fair enough. I mean, I can understand it being such a big part of his life. He was obviously still going to go to Carlton at this yes. stage. And it, this was a year off. And one day, Mick sent the message around to the boys on the commentary team that day. It was me, Hamish, uh, Tom Harley, and Brett Kirk was on the boundary. And said, boys, it was an MCG game. And you probably know Mick lived just near the right, MCG. He yeah, yes. had an apartment there. penthouse. And he invited us all over um, sort of an hour before the game, Nanette, put soup on for us, and Mick gave us a tour of his apartment <laughs> with the photos and bits and pieces, not in an egotistical way, but yeah. just like, you know, footy memories. He had maybe half a dozen bits of memorabilia from, a, you know, at that stage of 50-year career. Of and it was, I, I remember, you know, Hamish and I particularly, but even Tom and Brett, who were both Premiership AFL players in their own right, I remember, you know, we were all looking at each other going, wow, isn't this special? Uh, you know, we didn't have the same bond with Mick that a lot of his players had. Yet he knew team and team environment was important to him, and, and I'll never forget that day. It was It was a really nice thing for Mick to do. It was his way of saying, "Well, I was there, but I'm with you guys now." And and you're it, my team. Yeah, yeah, it
0: was it was very special. He was great like that as well, especially with the first year players. It always take him us on a camp yeah. every year, so we'd nice. go away, go up to his house, mm. and um, no, it'd be awesome. He was such a such a good guy, and I um I appreciate everything he ever did. A good man. Working in the media, mm. um, you're bound for some. Awkward uh, interactions. Yes. Does anything stand out over your career? Any sort of live news reads? Any awkward um, sort well, of interviews? Well, famously,
1: actually, at uh, Giant Stadium, I, we were doing a across to. Well, who was it? it? Was Bulldogs were playing? Bullies were playing. Giants. We crossed to Leon Cameron. I can't quite remember what had happened, but anyway, somehow I've I've confused which team had kicked the goal and who was the coach. That was an awkward moment, particularly given I've got Dennis on one side of me. Den, fine, though. I mean, I've sort of grown up with Den. Yeah. But Lee Matthews on the other side. Lee, actually, I think was the the bailout. He just, you know, he heard what had happened, just ploughed on and asked the next question. But that was awkward. Um, Other than that, you know, stuff goes wrong all the time, like it does in life. I often say to young reporters and stuff who are doing live uh, live crosses or pieces to camera and they'll get really upset if they um or are ah, or they'll make you know slip up on a name. I say, yeah, but if you walked out now into the newsroom or the park or in the car with your mate and you were chatting and you said, "Oh, I rang Dave the other oh not Dave, oh, I rang Pete the other day," no one is go, fair. "Oh, that's horrible! Don't what? What have you done?" I said, in real life, that sort of stuff happens all the time, uh, and and a lot of people get hung up on it. So uh, you tend to sort of just know that the best thing you can do is just bat on and keep moving, but. Um, Things go wrong. I think if you let it affect you, it can really bring you down. I guess it's a bit like footy. Yeah. If you plough on, you know, next opportunity, next time the ball comes, you're going to grab that one, right? Keep going. And that's got to be the method and the
0: and the approach, I reckon. Um, one of your bigger first events uh, in your career was when you commentated the 1998 World Aquatic Champs. Yeah, that's in right. In Perth. Yeah. And in that event, there were some pretty controversial things happened. Mm. I think the Chinese team was caught, yeah, doping. They were. That's right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. What was your memories of that, and how was that sort of when you were? Yeah. Obviously-
1: so I was a sort of a youngish reporter then, but then had sort of graduated to be on the on the network team. I wasn't calling, but I was on the broadcast. Um, it was famous for a couple of reasons. One, Ian Thorpe won his first world championship at the age of fifteen. He beat Grant Hackett. Wow. Grant was sixteen. Thorpe was fifteen. Just touched him out in the four hundred. That was two years before the Sydney Olympics. So this kid was born sort of in front of our eyes. No-one knew anything about Ian Thorpe at that stage other than, you know, there was a young kid from Sydney who'd happened to make the final. What yeah. a great effort sort of thing. Wow. You know, no one's gonna, he's not going to swim that well or, he, you know, who knows, he might finish third or fourth. Wow, that'll be a great effort. He won it. He beat another Australian and that was the start of, of the great Ian Thorpe story. And it happened in front of our eyes. So that was one part of it. The second part, and I was at the airport when it happened. So the Chinese swimmers have flown in there was one female swimmer in particular, she looked like, and, I'm, and I, this is an exaggeration but yeah. not much of an exaggeration, it was like when they walked off the plane in their tracksuits, it was like Aaron Sanderlands had walked off the plane, except she was female, she wasn't quite as tall as Aaron, yeah. but the shoulders were that big, and that was with a tracksuit on the next day we saw her at the pool, and it just, it did not look normal, and we'd all seen swimmers with big shoulders, yeah. female swimmers with big shoulders, that's, part of it that's you know the years of working them up but it did not look normal anyway less than a couple of days later I think their accommodation was raided they found all these vials and she was kicked oh, out yeah. and sent home and that was kind of the start of sort of a, a big drug period or, or a period of sort of harder enforcement on drugs I guess drugs had always been in swimming or in sport but this is a time when it was really kind of the microscope had gone on and the anti-doping had really turned up but I'll never forget that. The first time she sort of took a tracksuit top off and on the pool deck, you know, for swimming. And it was like, yeah, it was like Aaron Sandlands True. was wearing a one-piece female bathing suit and the shoulders were that big.
0: And everyone just sort of, like, that is not normal. Yeah, It was a sight to behold. And I suppose it's one of those things, that especially it's topical now because of what's happened with yes, Matt Horton of and um, Shani Jack and... Um, It's just – it's a bit of an awkward one with that one especially because he's called out, obviously. Yeah. Son, and then Shani's reluctantly, like, she's tested positive.
1: That's right. And um, so now she waits to see what can happen. Uh, I do the swimming now at the Olympics. I do call it now. um, And it's one of the things I get the most – I get a huge kick out of. One, because Dennis used to call the swimming. Uh, Bruce, for a period, called the swimming because Dan had gone to nine. And, uh, and then in the year that we didn't have the swimming, and Nine had it, which was 2012, uh, Ray Warren called the swimming. So they were pretty big names nice, to yeah. follow in Huge. their footsteps of. Uh, and uh, it's a great sport. Um, they're, they're amazing athletes. and There's it's, no
0: more nervous you can ever be standing on the blocks of yeah. swimming. Yeah. That's the, that, Were you a swimmer? No, not at all, but school school uh, swimming, you know, comps, that was just incredible.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, it's funny because uh, even I used to get nervous before the running races and stuff, and my daughter now is like year three and she's in running races and, and you feel those nerves for them. But absolutely, it's interesting. The, probably the – not. I don't really – you don't really get nervous once you've done it for a long time, but you do feel the moments and – Probably the most anticipation I've felt has been before um, before the big Australian finals at the Rio Olympics so there was Mac Horton yep. uh, and he won he beat Sun Yang there was Kate and Bronte Campbell it didn't turn out so well for Kate and Bronte uh, and there was Kyle Chalmers and he he, he won um, Huge. there but you just you, you know that a lot of people back home are watching that moment and um, there's nowhere really to go if you if you if you get the words wrong, if you get tongue tied, if you happen to call the wrong lane or that sort of thing, which, you know, all your training and preparation should put you in a position where it doesn't. But that's that's probably as yeah yeah. 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 I mean it's different to a footy game because a footy game goes for two hours and, you know, you sort of roll your way into a footy game. This is one minute and it's all got to be spot on. So, you know, and then that's, that's swimming, which is big time. So then how Bruce deals with the 10 seconds of the 100 metres on the track is, you know, like altogether different. I guess the only
0: difference is typically there's not an Australian in the final of the 100, but yeah. we still know everybody's watching it. Of course. That uh, Speaking of the 100, going into the Olympics in Sydney 2000, so mm. you're again on the commentary team. Mm. Um, massive, massive Olympics, obviously being in Sydney. Yeah. Um, Oh well, it's funny
1: like when I come out and do Giants
0: games still remember. Yeah, yeah. and and every time we drive around those
1: boulevards and things and been out there for a bit of other stuff as well. Yeah all the memories come flooding back. It was an amazing time. And here where we are we're in Darling Harbour at the moment. Around here every night of the games you could not walk. So yeah. if you can imagine every single space of brick around the water being occupied with five people yeah. that's what it was like. It was un- it was like a crowd at the MCG was standing out there every single, basically from midday until one a.m. Incredible! Uh, it was phenomenal. Yeah. What were some of those memories that you speak of that back then? Um, that? I was in there the night that Kathy Freeman won. Yes. Um, I, I, we'd sort of blagged our way and I, God, somebody else from I wasn't calling anything else. Bruce that was night. calling that. Bruce one. was calling yeah. that race. Yeah. and Called it magnificently. It's a famous call. So, so I, I remember that. Um. Uh, that was that was very special. Um. I went to the uh, closing ceremony, and that was amazing. But just being in Sydney for a home Olympics, it was it was a phenomenal time.
0: Yeah, I was probably a bit too young to acknowledge it back then. But looking back now, and obviously doing the research on this, it just was incredible. Yeah. Especially Cathy Freeman's run. Yeah. Um, and obviously, how old were you in two thousand? I was six. Right. Well, okay. Yeah. Well, you were old enough. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Well, yeah, and you've seen the race. I mean, oh, you yeah. can imagine that. And I think what happens too is. As we go through further Olympics, where we don't have people in those big races, you then really appreciate them more. I mean, we've been blessed in swimming to have wonderful eras of swimming. But when you when you sort of wa- when we watch these next Olympics, and there's no Sally Pearson now, and there might not be an Australian on the track in a big final uh, with any meaningful chance, I think you then cast your mind back, back to and you go, "Wow, we we had someone in one of these races." In fact, we we had the favourite and we had the winner and it was in Sydney. And the memories always go bigger over time. Yeah, exactly. It just gets bigger and bigger. So it was a a moment in time, a phenomenal moment.
0: Thousands of Aussies trust Aussie Broadband to keep them connected to the world, even when they're on the go. Because as well as reliable home internet, Aussie Broadband also offers flexible mobile plans with super generous data allowances and no locking contracts. Their 100% Australian-based support team are ready to help you make the switch. It only takes a few minutes. Aussie Broadband. The actual Aussie way. Search Aussie Broadband Mobile to find out more. T's and C's apply. Speaking of Bruce, we touched on him earlier, but um, Mm. obviously you guys had a great relationship. You obviously learn a lot from Mm. him in your time. What sort of impact has he had on your career? Yeah, look, Dan and Bruce, and I'll put them in together. I mean, for me, they were the
1: dream team of AFL commentary. Different styles, different approaches but unbelievable together as well. Uh, they were just, you know, all, you never, no one's ever perfect or nothing's ever perfect. But they were just about the perfect team. Um, so they've both been phenomenal. Uh, I've spent a lot more time with Dan than I have Bruce, but Bruce has always been very giving of his time to me, to Hamish, to all the younger guys coming through. But often I think some of the most, the best things I've learned from Bruce, I reckon, have been often things that I've heard him say or things that I've read that he's written. And one great line from Bruce uh, I read it in, maybe it was one of those TV magazines on a Sunday where they interview someone who's on TV and ask them five or six questions. And one of the questions was, "Have you ever, um, has there ever been a broadcast that you weren't happy with or has there ever been a call that you weren't happy with? And his answer to that question was, you know, every single time I broadcast, I'll leave that broadcast thinking there'll be a moment in that call where I go, oh, I wish I'd said that or gee, I could have said that better. And he said, there is no such thing as the perfect broadcast. And I, I found that a really valuable lesson because often I would leave a game of footy or whatever I'd done and gone, you know, I've done a good job, no worries. But oh, that moment when that guy took that really big mark, maybe I should have said that or perhaps I could have said this. But hearing Bruce say that he has that same feeling himself, that was a really powerful lesson. That, that, was, that was really significant that even the best that we've ever known walks away from all of them and thinks, you know what, I could have said something else or I could have done something else. And I mean, it's not my story to tell, but Bruce says it many times. Even in the great Kathy Freeman race, right at the end he says, what a, um, what a champion, uh, what a legend, what a champion. And he, he says that he wishes he had them the other way around, that it, it, a champion becomes a legend. Yes. He said, what a legend, what a champion. Um, and uh, to this day when he hears it, he goes, it was supposed to be the other way around or should have been the other way around. Now, nobody – you'd play that race to a million people and nobody would no, say, there's no. nothing wrong with that race. <laughs> no. That is the best race I've ever heard. But Bruce himself goes, no, I wish I had those two words at the very end. The last two words that he said or the last two phrases, he wishes he
0: had them the other way around. Yeah, I suppose it just shows a professional that both of you are. Oh, um, well, especially those guys especially. too. Especially. But even coming from you know where I started and I just started this, just doing it by mm. myself and interviewing guys and um, – not that I've, uh, not that I'm a tycoon, but going back to my first few episodes, mm. I couldn't listen to them.
1: Yeah, yeah. It's good to have the growth. Yeah, and and I mean, one thing all those guys will tell you, and you will have noticed yourself, the best way to improve is just more time on the block. Keep the more, more of these you do, um, the better it gets, and, and then it becomes really good fun. And so going to the footy to call the game, or going to the swimming to call just the enjoy. swimming. It's, I mean, like, how, how lucky can you be that yeah. you're going to... The, and, and in terms of the footy, it's the closest, I reckon, it feels... It, it's the closest... I suppose coaches would say in the coach's box, that might be reasonably close. But calling the game is as close to sort of being involved as a player... You're feeling, as I you're you're should, feeling it, you do. you're actually going yeah, with the game. Yeah, you do. And you're sort of, you're up, you're riding the game, you're up with the game, you're down with the game. Uh, you have a breather when the umpire blows the whistle like the players do. So it is, it's kind of similar...
0: Hey, Tommy. G'day, Dil. Mate, why are you sweating so much? Oh, mate, I'm trying to get this sloppy rig in shape for summer, but I've got a serious problem, Dylan. Oh, really? What's that? I'm really overheating, especially me old boys. Mate, have you not tried Bond's new X-Temp undies? What's Bond's X-Temp undies? Mate, they're Bond's new undies that help regulate ball temp.
1: Yeah, what
0: the heck? Yeah, when the body temp rises, cooling kicks in to help evaporate sweat... And expel heat. Gee whiz, mate. Where can I get me hands on a pair of these bad boys? www.bonds.com.au Say it again for me, www.bonds.com.au I just added a few to the card as you are speaking. Serve the web, brother. Good on you, mate. See ya. I feel like one of those moments that you probably had feeling it Mm. uh, while, while calling was... One of the most famous calls Mm. you've done, the Stephen Bradbury call. Um, 2002. um, Mate, the stage is yours.
1: Yeah, look, just amazing. What people don't realise too with that, a couple of things actually. Um, So, Stephen had lots of luck to get into the final. I'll tell you about a couple of the slices of luck that he had. But about four or five months before the Olympics, I got a call from the head of sport um, just randomly one day, and he said, um, what do you know about short track speed skating? <laughs> you know, guy, Heaps. Yeah. Uh, you know, we all knew that the right answer when you get a question like that is, oh, well, yeah, no, no, I I'm, love I'm, it. I'm yeah. up for it, you know. And um, obviously he didn't expect me to know that much. So Bruce had done short track speed skating at the previous Winter Olympics and Bruce is the number one man, his call and I think the network were keen for him to do the more prestigious events, which will be prime time, even though they didn't have great Aussie chances, so the downhill and that sort of stuff, they're the marquee events at Winter Olympics. So the decision was made for Bruce to go and do those rather than do short track speed skating because it was a little bit off-Broadway and, you know, no real Aussie chances, that sort of thing. So Bruce goes that way, and and now I I got the call, look, how would you like to do short track speed skating? Bruce did it last time. He's not going to do it this time. Um, It's yours if you want it. So, oh, great, what a wonderful opportunity. So, you know, sort of like, and, and I've, I've been to one, one year three birthday party at a place called the Mirabooka Ice Rink. That's as, close, as <laughs> to, close to ice and snow as I've been. So, you know, I spend three months boning up and learning it all. Then we get there and um, it's, it's heats, quarterfinals, semifinals, final. Uh, he got through the heat and did, did quite well. He'd been a bronze medalist, by the way, in a team event earlier. So, he, you know, not a total... Mug Stephen, he knew, you know, he's at it the Olympics, and it's yeah. his fourth Olympic Games. Um, then so he's in the quarterfinals, and um, he, he just got through. He uh, so we're in the quarterfinals, and he and he just got through. Uh, and then we get to the semis, and there was a bit of carnage in the semi final, and for the for. For one of the first times in history, or maybe the only time in history, instead of only two people going through from the semi, they sent three through, and Stephen was one of those. So he snuck so into the final. It was a wild final. card, sort of. Yeah, kind of. So yeah. there was a five-man final instead of a four-man final, oh, and Stephen was the beneficiary of a, a ruling. Hard sport to understand, to be perfectly honest. Yeah. I don't know how it happened. <laughs> anyway, so there we are. It's three and a half minutes. These other guys are unbelievably skilled. Stephen Bradbury made, makes skates at home in his part-time and the other guys where Stephen Bradbury skates like he's the skate maker for these guys and here he is in the final with them and I'll never forget these names for the rest of my life Ono from America Lee from um, Korea uh Turcotte from Canada Ahn from China so those four guys and Stephen Bradbury race a gun goes off bang the other four right out the front Stephen just at the back he decided to hang back and hope We're going round and round. Big moment. I I couldn't believe I was calling an Olympic final that was going live into Australia. You know, I was just lucky to be there. And Bruce, had he done it, I wouldn't be there. And Stephen shouldn't have got through that far. Like, you know, on form and trial and results, he was nowhere near the final. But, you know, bit of luck along the way, and he gets there. And I've got an American co-commentator who um, we sort of picked up. He was like an ex-skater, and they teed us up with him. And anyway, good guy. We're getting on well. And Anyway, pretty exhausting. The last lap, and he's kind of just bringing them around the corner. And then, like, on the last bend, everyone's seen it. And he's sort of got the call at this point. And then when one skate clips another, and I notice one goes into another, then the other, and they all start to come down. Hang on, sport. This is my moment, mate. Hang on, American uh, expert. Let me take over here. (laughs) And, um, you know, it's like it's (laughs) slow motion. One, two, three, four, down they go. And this is in the last 10 metres of the race. And, you know, there's no time for sort of pearls of wisdom. It was they've all gone down. And Bradbury, from the tail of the field, has come through to win gold. I mean, you just could not believe it. And you've seen the shot of Bradbury as he crosses the line. And he's got his arms out and he's going, did I win? Have I I just, have I? And, you know, uh, he's thinking that. (laughs) We're thinking that. Yeah. Nobody really knew if he had won. I'm so pleased that I said has crossed the line to win gold. Yes. We had no idea at that time, to be perfectly honest, if he had won the gold um, because there was every chance that they were Disqualify going to cause a reskate. Or or, um, but for whatever reason, that's what came to me in those moments. And, you know, it stands up now because imagine... Had we said or had the line be, well, if he's, you know, depending on what you know, Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it, it, it's, it's held up and, and, you know, that was 19, uh, nine, 2002 and, you know, nearly 20 years ago and it's a famous moment. But what I learned from that too, one, I got my opportunity and, you know, you get in there, you get a shot, who knows what can happen. But Stephen, the same thing happened to him. Yeah. And there's a look on his face when he comes out to win his, to, to accept his gold medal. And he's he's spoken about this. I'm not telling tales out of school. He sort of didn't really know how to accept the medal, the gold medal when he first came out for the medal presentation. He, you know, he says, I, I knew I wasn't the best skater in the race and you know, I was a bit embarrassed, it was a bit awkward. But he looks up at the Australian flag and he sort of says, bugger it. You know, I'm not accepting it for that last three and a half minutes only, although he was the first one across the line, but I'm accepting it on, for the, for the um, 16 years that I've slugged it out and sure. had part-time jobs and done all of those things and got myself to four Olympics and got myself in a position to be in this race. And, and what I learned from that, and I often talk about this and I, I often take this story around and speak to people, a lot of people in life, they worry about the finish line and they think, oh, what if I'm not good enough to be right up there at the end? What if, what if those other guys are better than me or smarter than me or faster than me? But in life, in sport, in business, as I learned from Stephen and as part of me along on that journey, sometimes it's just about getting yourself in the race. Just get yourself to the start line. Don't worry about the finish line, just get to the start line. And who knows what might happen in the race or in the, in the journey or on the trip. And, and, and that was the great, great reflection for me out of that. It was an incredible event, incredible sequence. The fact that I happen to be there calling it Australia's first ever Winter Olympic gold medal, the way we won it, but such a valuable lesson as well. And um, oh, he's a good bloke, Stephen Bradbury. He's a terrific speaker and a guy whose life changed in an instant. But he's made the most of that opportunity as he did throughout his life which is really inspiring i reckon
0: are you still in contact with him? yeah now? we do
1: yeah. well then there's some talk about a movie being made really uh, and yeah. and he rang me the other day when i say the other day maybe yeah. six or nine months ago and he yeah. goes hey i'm talking to these hollywood people and they're thinking about making a movie of the race and you know the story behind it and he said they were tossing around commentators or you know we they think they need someone to play the role of the commentator and he, he said, I've been helping him out with some suggestions and that. And then I thought, well, the guy that called it is still around yeah, and calling. Yeah. Do you want to do it? And I said, I'd love to. So uh, I don't know where that's at as yet, but that would be pretty amazing if um, you know you end up in a, you know, in a big in a small room. part in yeah, yeah. a Hollywood movie about that event. That would be huge. Calling, uh, you know, recreating
0: the moment. That would be something. Watch this space. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> um, again, the two years later you've got uh, the Olympics mm. in your motherland? Yeah. Greece? Was home Olympics for me. Home Olympics. Olymp- Black shorts. Yeah. Um, that was another big one, obviously. It, yeah,
1: I did rowing there and we won some gold medals and it was just a buzz to be at the Olympics. I did basketball and rowing. I worked with Andrew Gaze, uh, Gaze one of the world's yeah. greatest blokes. I had the best time. Um, I could speak the language. It just—it was an amazing time. And uh, the awesome foursome won the second of their uh, gold medals and I was calling that with Nick Green, so I, I had a, an incredible time that was just a, a buzz to be there. Was that the also was that the lay down Sally that moment, was, yeah? And I called well? that race, and yeah. amazingly, um, and I, yeah, I, I now we did Nick Green, yeah. expert Olympic gold medalist, and we could see something was wrong, it was well, impossible there, for, to know. For
0: those who don't know, we're talking about the lay down Sally moment that mm. in the Olympics the where she basically stopped rowing, but, but yeah, in the
1: boat, she was you know she passed, sort of sort of, yeah, yeah, passed, passed out yeah effectively well, passed out i remember with that we said there's a problem in the australian boat that was the line when we first saw that happen and then it really blew up after that because there was you know the crew sort of was imploding on each other or on her and and all of that but there was a pretty unique moment to be involved in and yeah. obviously that doesn't happen too often but you know, I remember leaving there and thinking, well, if, some, if, if people fall over or lay down, I'm probably going to be the bloke calling it cause yeah. that, that's what happened. So that was, that was a, a, an amazing race to be a part of for different reasons. It got so much attention and so coverage, but it wasn't, you know,
0: it wasn't a success story for Australia. It was a, an infamous moment, if you like. Of course. And that year was also quite big for yourself. Mm. Um, nominated. Cleo Bachelor of the <laughs> Year. Hard to believe, isn't it? I've heard... Um, Best on in the Olympic Village that year as well. Uh, as, well uh, I was I was a different man back then. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, I could speak the language, Dylan, yeah. so I had a head start on everybody else. Yeah. I, I I could kick on both feet, let's say. <laughs>
0: <laughs> That's fantastic. Um, okay, well, the rumours are true. Uh, right, we'll move on. Um, so obviously we've, we've touched on all your Olympic uh, Olympic feats and obviously still coming up. We've got the Olympics coming up yeah. uh, next year, which will mm-hmm. be great. Yeah. Very exciting to be on that yeah. one.
1: Kate Campbell going again. Kyle Chalmers trying to defend his title. Kyle
0: Chalmers is actually a friend of the show, I forgot to mention. He's Happy days. He's been on the podcast. Well, there you go. So, uh, so we're in good
1: company then. We're well, in good company. He's a champ, Kyle, and uh, you know it was a great thrill to call his race
0: and we might get another crack at it. He's swimming so well again. I'm sure he will. Yeah. Mm. Um, Especially good things happen to those who have been on the show. Well, so there you go. It yourself, feels like this is good luck here. Yeah. It is. It is. Um, AFL commentary. Mm. Obviously, you love the game. What was the memories of your first game? Uh, first game calling? Yeah. Well, I, I know it was Port
1: Adelaide against uh, Essendon. It was at Etihad Stadium. It was round two or three 2012. I reckon you guys started – well, the Giants started in round – in – uh, in 2012. Yeah, and the very first game of the season was a standalone Saturday night from memory in Sydney yes. at the Olympic Stadium, yes. uh, GWS Sheenie. versus Sydney. Yep. And uh, the Saturday night team called that game. It was BT's first game across at seven. Then I reckon there was a. F- Full round of footy the next week, which was kind of the end of round one, yep. if that made sense, minus the one game that had already been played the weekend before, and then so our first go at it was the next next week. Um, so I remember being very excited. I remember thinking, "Wow, this is really cool." Putting the you know putting the suit on at the hotel, seven yeah. pins already on the thing, and you know, it's like playing your first game really. It's yeah. it, it's exactly the same, and and for somebody who would aspired to sort of get into that area, it was a huge buzz. Me and Hamish. Uh, Mick and Tom and uh, Brett Kirk uh, was uh, on the boundary. Look, I'm sure if if we listened back to it now, we wouldn't think it was our best work. But, it was a huge buzz. I remember Essendon won. It was pretty tight at three-quarter time. And um, Essendon won. Funny, I did one of your games a couple of weeks ago and uh, Jackson Trengove was playing for the Bulldogs. And I distinctly remember he played in that game for Port Adelaide. And... um, it's amazing how time moves on so quickly but uh, uh, he was one of the players in the very first game that I did and in the most recent game that I did he played in that game as well but obviously at a different club and all those years yeah. later but I just remember being a great thrill and a bit like boys after a game of footy we went back to the hotel um, we had a, a beer afterwards and I remember thinking wow this is a, it's a great thing to be a part of I, I felt very very privileged but very lucky and very happy. I listened back to it. It was pretty good. I mean, you know, it was okay. It was only just,
0: probably. But it, you know, we got our first one out of the way, and it was a brilliant thing to do. Oh, of course, it's huge. Um, what about some of the best games you think that you've commentated? Yeah. Oh, some... Sorry, best games played that you've been a part of? Yeah,
1: sure. Look, being obviously, um, obviously. I've got a bit of a soft spot in terms of where the focus goes for West Coast and Fremantle because in day-to-day life back home, uh, I do breakfast radio in Perth and I also present the sports news for Seven in Perth Monday to Thursday. So a lot of the focus is on West Coast and Fremantle. In 2013, the next year, uh, Fremantle had finished third or fourth. And had been sent down to Geelong for the qualifying final. Which everyone thought was a bit unfair. Should have been at the MCG. It was the start of that. They weren't expected to do well. They'd had a great year. Um, And I remember calling that game. Sanderlands has just retired. Uh, Stephen Hill, who no one's quite sure where he's going to go. Came off the bench in the dying moment. Sanderlands palms the ball down on the wing. Uh, Hill Straight on the ground, swallows the ball, three bounces, kicks a goal. And that was the goal that put them into the home prelim the week later and they made the grand final off the back of that. That was special. Uh, I remember that moment. That moment, a big moment for Frio in Perth because it was into their, yeah, it was a really Huge. defining moment for them. I was lucky enough to call that. And a, a couple of prelims I've called with GWS involved, but there was a goal that Dustin Martin kicked at the punt road end in 2018. 20- Seventeen, that was kind of the sealer. It was against the Giants. I remember remember Brett Delidio being at the other end, and I remember just looking down at him, feeling like I didn't know Brett, but feeling. Flat for him. Not only had he missed out on the grand final, but obviously the Tigers were storming into one and all yeah. those people who had loved him. I just I remember looking for Brett Deledio and just thinking, what what would he be thinking this play? You know, it's so tough. Anyway, Dusty gets the ball. He'd had the most amazing season. He he was two days away from winning the Brownlow. He was eight days away from or seven days away from winning the Norm Smith and the yeah. Premiership. And he kicked the seal it was nothing fancy to the call other than dusty, dusty, dusty. And the crowd roared. Incredible. Everyone up. I still get Richmond supporters, you know, when I pass them in the street, they go, and they'll say that to me sometimes. They love it. And that, that, that's nice. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So st- stuff like that's nice. So uh, uh, that was a big moment, a big team in Melbourne, finally getting into a grand final, and I was calling that with Darce and Richo. And Good Richo on, yeah. called the last sort of 10 seconds of that game when the Tigers finally made it through into the grand final.
0: So uh, that, that, there's a couple of moments that stand out for me. That's huge. That's huge. Um, the Perth Footy Bubble. So obviously, mm. being from Perth your whole life, you spoke about the the passion uh, there and the love for West Coast and Fremantle. A lot of people claim to be the Prince of Perth. <laughs> I think you've got that title, oh. well and truly. <laughs> Very um, right. It's uh, it's obviously a big pressure cooker over there, and like you said before, you work yeah. with six pr yeah. radio station. Mm. Your station actually broke the release of Ross Line. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. What's it like over there for people that don't aren't mm. from Perth? Yeah, it's sort of got a unique.
1: It, it, it's hard at it. There's no doubt about that. I think Perth a lot like Adelaide in that sense because two teams, one town, all of that sort of stuff. And in some ways, it feels like it's probably slightly less competitive, though, than the Melbourne market. Obviously, Sydney's totally different because of the rugby league influence and, and Brizzy the same. Um, but uh, it's, it, it's a good place to be involved in the footy media. We've got two very big and powerful clubs, one who seems to get it right more often than not. West Coast are a phenomenal club, uh, big club, big support, and they've had big success. Fremantle haven't had the same, but they're still a big club. They got a lot of support and a lot of members behind them. And you know, once they're up there again, the, that stadium we will, will be full all the time. So it's it's a good place to be involved in the footy media. But it's it's a funny feeling when um, AFL coaches start to be younger than you. Mm. And in Adam Simpson. I had the first West Coast or Fremantle coach who was younger than me. and you know, I speak to him every Monday night live. And So you, you kind of know you're, you, you're sort of ticking on a little bit. And I'm sure Ross Lyons, well, I suppose if it's Peter Sumich, he'll be older than me. But if it's Justin Longmuir yep. or one of the other younger candidates, he'll be younger as well. So you kind of realise, gee, I've been around a while. And yeah. I've been at Seven in Perth for nearly 26 years now. Incredible. So uh, all of Fremantles, uh, I started a year before Fremantle came into the comp. And I started the year of West Coast second premiership. So, no, pretty amazing. Uh, It can get tough at times because there's only two clubs to go to if you need a story or you need some coverage. Um, But at the same time, everyone works together pretty
0: well. And I think it's fair to say there's a fair level of respect. If you had to pick one, Mm. I know it's it's compromising, Mm. but if you had to pick one that is your... you got got your heart set on. Yeah,
1: well, I can answer this honestly because everyone says, who do you barrack for? I barracked for Richmond as a kid. Everyone in WA and South Australia had their team and they had a VFL team. That's the way it was. So Richmond was my team as a kid. Then I was in year 11 at school when West Coast started. 85% of footy supporters jumped onto West Coast when they came in. So I followed West Coast. Then I started working at seven. When you start reporting on the teams, you kind of take a little bit of a step back. You're not so much a supporter now, and you're more a follower or an observer. And then they used to belt Fremantle in the derbies unmercifully in the first, first ten derbies. or the first nine. It was the tenth derby that Frio finally got on. So I just found myself kind of barracking for Frio in those games because you wanted a more interesting storyline. Yeah. So I, I, then I had a bit of a soft spot for Frio. Yeah. And I remember when Frio ran out, 2013 grand final, I wasn't calling the game. I was just I was there for seven. But I remember thinking, wow, I was really up for yeah. Freo. But I was up for West Coast last year as well. When they we're now there. And then when you start commentating particularly, more so than when you're as a reporter, you really do take a back seat. Yeah. So I can, I can say quite on. I'm a member of West Coast and Frio. Yeah. I follow them and they're the teams that I'll have most interest in because of what my work dictates. But I, genuinely, I, I, wouldn't, I, I don't support a team. And what happens is you tend to go through phases where there'll be players that you like or there'll be someone at a club that you like and you kind of got a soft spot for them. And I reckon probably I've got a soft spot right now for Essendon because John Walsfold was a big figure in Perth. Yes. He worked at Seven for a while, known pretty well. Nice guy and I really like him and his family. So i kind of got a bit of a soft spot for him. Aaron Sandlands was my favourite player though because I just thought, what a freak. And I'm on the plane every every weekend coming over to Sydney for weekend sunrise or the footy. And every time I go to those bathrooms, I think, how on earth? (laughs) How did he do this for 18 years? I like, I can't fit. And Sandy's got, like, another foot on me. And never I never thought about that. How? Yeah. What does he do when he goes in there? Like, <laughs> I bump my head every time and I'm a midget next to him. So, I don't know. I just love Sandy because he was so different. Stephen Canelio, Perth boy, yes. great story. Everybody loved him in Perth because he could have played... Test cricket for Australia, yeah. and everybody knew his story. And obviously,
0: and, the famous game for Swan Districts. Uh, Swan Districts.
1: Yeah, and he played against uh, alongside Andrew Cracker and um, Premiership player at sixteen. Everyone, and so you know, I, I liked the Giants because of that. And there was a lot of West Aussies at the Giants, so I was always interested in them. So you, you, they seem to be, they tend to be the things, follow the people. Not tend the... to be the things that you follow. Exactly.
0: Yep. Yeah. Mate, uh, another part of your career is. As you said before, 6PR Mm. radio. You've been doing brekkie radio for nearly two decades. Yeah.
1: 4 a.m., is it? Wake up? Yeah, quarter past four, the alarm goes off. Quarter past four. Is it just natural now? Pretty natural, yeah. Pretty natural. I mean, you know, occasionally on the iPhone, you'll forget to flick the alarm on. And, you know, that will happen three or four times a year. And probably two of those three times, you'll wake up anyway. The body clock will, will get you up. And, in fact, most mornings you wake up five minutes before the alarm. It's a freak out. It happens. But yeah. you just, your body just says, righto, it's time to go. Um, but through, And I've been doing that. I've got three young kids. I've got a wife who's at home most weekends with the kids on her own. So it's been a big ask for the family as well. But, you know, I wouldn't swap it. I mean, it's, it's brilliant. Radio is amazing and dynamic, and it's a lot like doing this podcast. TV is brilliant. Calling the footy is amazing. Doing the news is amazing. Weekend Sunrise, which is something different but sort of obviously still the same themes. So I feel, you know, really lucky to have had all the opportunities that I've had. But also all the I feel lucky that I've been able to live in Perth and do all of those things. Yeah. And I'm thankful to Dennis and Bruce, I guess, for that because they showed... TV executives, that you didn't have to be in Melbourne or Sydney to to be a big player necessarily, and not that I call myself a big player, but, you know, you can have a big role and still live in one of those other markets, as Dan and Bruce showed. So I'm very thankful that they they kind of forged the path for the rest of us not to have to be in Sydney or Melbourne. Fantastic. Mate, that's all I've got. Is there anything else you... No, other than um, if this is the start of the journey for you, uh, it only... I mean... (laughs) This is great fun. I mean, like, how many jobs do you sort of get where you just sit around, you have can't. a good chat, None. have a yak? Uh, you can draw on your footy memories. Footy's a great thing to have in common with people too. And one of the things when I first started, it's different a little bit now. But when I first came to Sydney during those Olympic years, and stuff, so, used to land in Sydney and feel like an alien. Yeah, because they didn't. You couldn't sort of like hey, rugby league on the back. Well, what's going on there? Whereas a guy from Perth, you could land in Melbourne or you could land in Adelaide, and it didn't matter if you didn't know anyone in the world. You had footy in common. And it's a great thing. I remember uh, the very first time I met Lee Matthews, and you know, how many people must Lee be introduced and this and that. And and Dennis introduced me to him in a commentary box in Perth one night. I wasn't on the team at that stage. I was just a kid coming through. And it, and uh, Dennis said, uh, Lee, this is Basil Samples. He works with us at Seven in Perth. And Lee was very nice. And And in the next breath... Then said uh, Basil played for West Perth. He was a vice-captain back in 1993, played under Jeff Geishin. And the fact that I was a footy bloke, I, I could see Lee's level of engagement yeah. just raise that extra little bit. And, and that's what we're lucky enough to have, being footy people. We've got that for the rest of our lives. It's a, it's a great thing to have. You can take it anywhere and
0: and who knows where it'll take you. Of course. Thanks so much, Baz. Really appreciate it, mate. Uh, Best of luck for the rest of the year, and uh, thanks for coming on the show.
1: Likewise, mate. If you see that
0: bloke uh, who's been around for eight years? Give him my best. Yeah, I'll give him your number. (laughs) Good on you, mate. Cheers. This episode was proudly brought to you by Bonds. Thanks again for listening to the show. If you loved it, Please rate and leave a review. If you have any feedback, want to suggest a guest or advertise with Dylan Friend, you can contact me via email, dylan at dylanfriends.com or slide into my DMs on Instagram at dillbuckley or at dylanfriends. For bonus content and giveaways, sign up to the email list at www.dylanfriends.com and to get notifications on release, make sure you subscribe via iTunes or wherever else you listen to the show. And remember, be yourself. Everyone else is taken.